So, Father, we gather, recognizing ourselves, as it were, a room full of simpletons and fools, apart from the wisdom of Christ and knowing Him. And so show us, Christ, Lord, take Your Word and root around in us and, and take it and chisel away. Remove the dross. May only the things that bring honor and glory to you and to Jesus Christ remain. Thank you, Father, for the relevancy of your word, and I pray that you would use it well today, that we as a congregation would be growing and learning and conforming to the image of Christ, that this would not be wasted time in any way. Thank you, Father, for the promise of your presence. Thank you for the power of your word. We just commit ourselves now, Lord, to the hearing of your word, and we ask for the strength to discipline ourselves to the obedience of the word through the working of your Holy Spirit in us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and ask these things. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to tell you that um, if you enjoy the story of the Hatfields and McCoys, you will really enjoy the story that I want to direct our attention to for our introduction this morning. It's in your Bible in that Old Testament book called Judges. Uh, Following the book of Joshua comes the book of Judges. Will you find it, please, in chapter 12? And let's remind ourselves of a story. It's one of the uh, many, many most remarkable stories that we find in our Old Testament, and we learn so many truths from it. Uh, This is... um, A really interesting section of scripture. The key guy that we're talking about here is a guy you might not remember very well. His name is Jephthah. Jephthah. Now Jephthah's an interesting guy. He's uh, of the tribe of Israel. And um, he's uh, what we call a Gileadite. If, If you would take your bulletin and mark this section of scripture, I'm confident that you will really enjoy rereading back to chapters 10, 11, and 12, what we're going to read today and put it in context. Um, This guy, Jephthah, um, had a bunch of brothers. He's of the tribe of Gilead there. And they didn't like him because he had a different mother. His father was unfaithful and uh, he was born out of that relationship. And so he did not share their mother. And so they rejected him until one day the Ammonite came to wipe them out. And then the, 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 the tribe of the Gileadites, they decided that they really needed Jephthah. He was a powerful warrior. And you'll recall in chapter 11 that this is that most interesting story. Do you remember um, what happened was the, the Ammonites were going to come wipe them out. So the brothers talked Jephthah into um, pulling together his strength and fighting against the Ammonites who uh, they were very much afraid of. And Jephthah said, sure, I'll do it, but if I win and get all their goods, then I get to be in charge of our family. And they said, fine, just save our lives. And then he did something very foolish, and it kind of fits with our message today, because um, in our message in the Ten Commandments today, we're going to talk about oaths and truthfulness. And that's where in chapter 11, you'll recall some of you that odd story where Jephthah, before he went out to fight the Amalekites, turned to God and he said, God, and he kind of is going to make a deal a little bit. And he says, God, if you give me the victory today over the Ammonites, then when I return home, the first living creature that comes from the door of my house, I will give as a burnt offering to you. Oh, be careful what you say, right? Guard your tongue. Because Jephthah went, God gave him tremendous victory. And when he returned home, his Young adult daughter is the one who ran from the door to greet him when he came down the trail. And uh, Bible students uh, have disagreement about exactly how he followed through with that oath. I personally believe that he did indeed follow through and offer her up as a burnt offering. It's a very odd story. And then in chapter 12, a funny thing happens. And this is what I wanted to put in our minds for our introduction today. It's a very interesting story. If you're a Civil War buff, you'll kind of relate to uh, maybe the time when, when uh, Robert E. Lee was fleeing Gettysburg and coming across the fords of the Potomac up by Falling Waters and, and south of Hagerstown. And the, the Yankee sharpshooters were up in trees trying to pick them off when they came through these shallow spots in the river. 
Because what happened to Jephthah is he went out, he defeated the Ammonites with a great victory, and evidently because he got all the spoils of war, he had some cousins who uh, were the sons of Ephraim, and they became jealous of him, and they got upset with him, and it started a civil war, uh, uh, nothing short of a, a Hatfields and McCoy's cousins battle. And that's in chapter 12, and it's just incredible. Look at what it says. It says, The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. How's that for your, you know, your second cousins talking to you? First cousins once removed is probably what they were. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my own hand, Jephthah says. I crossed over against the Ammonites and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? It's like, we're family. What's up with you? But I think they wanted, the only thing I can figure out is that they wanted... They were jealous of all the spoils of war that he ended up with. And they wanted a part of it. And it was often common to call the tribes together to fight. So here's the point of the story I wanted to make. This this really interesting. Look at this. Look at verse 4. Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and he fought with Ephraim. It's, It's a civil war. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, you are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites Gileadites in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, watch this, the men of Gilead said to him, are you an Ephraimite? And when he said no, they said to him, then say Shibboleth. Everybody say, Shibboleth, Shibboleth. And then he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. And then they seized him and they slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. And at that time, look at this, it's incredible. You talk about the single bloodiest day of the war. 42,000 of their first cousins once removed, they slaughtered that day. I want to tell you, that's just an incredible scene. And you've, you understand what's happening. They knew that the guys had to flee and they had to cross the Jordan. There were only a couple good spots where they could cross the Jordan. So the Gileadite guys go down there with their swords and they stand around and wait. And all these guys, but they all look alike. They're all family. They dress alike. There's no different uniform. And they come down and say, who are you? Oh, I'm, I'm one of you. Yeah, and he's trying to just walk his way through the line. And they say, wait a minute. Say Shibboleth. Because they grew up in a different region of the country. And the guys from Ephraim couldn't say, shh. And they said, Sibboleth. And they take him down with the sword and turn the water red with blood. I want to tell you one of the lessons that you get out of that story. That day, it really mattered what came out of your mouth. You know that? What you said and how you said it had everything to do with the rest of your life. I want to invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 20 now, and I want you to see that when we stand before a holy God, and when God gives us these ten words, and this instruction in the Ten Commandments in the series we're in, that it really matters what comes out of your mouth. We're on the third commandment. Uh, I hope you have your card in your Bible. There's some back on the guest counter. If not, look at the screen. And let's remind ourselves, as soon as I read our text, and we'll begin at verse 1, Exodus chapter 20, through verse 7 today, as we add the third commandment to our study, and then we want to review together corporately our three commandments. Somebody asked me, why are the words different with what I'm reading and then what we have on the card? Because I really like the way the NIV had it. We're memorizing them in NIV, and I'm reading out of the ESV, the English Standard Version. And it kind of just sheds a little light on it. Don't let it irritate you, please. Okay, chapter 20, Exodus, verse 1. Look at our text. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. 
you, water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now our verse for today, verse 7, And you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Well, this morning, I want us to review our Ten Commandments, and then I want us to dig in, and I want us to learn four very essential lessons for the blessing of God in our lives from this text. Let's go. One, two, and three. And you young people that are taking your notes, make sure you're ready to go with your pens. You old people should be taking notes, too. You don't get a T-shirt. We're bribing our children with t-shirts from day camp when it gets here in teen week. So you young people, they've been bringing their outlines to me and I've been initialing them. No cheating, no copying, and no having your mom and dad do it for you. All right, do the best you can. Here we go. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. You're supposed to talk with me. Okay, let's try it again. Ready? Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Are they up on the... Can we flip them up there, Ben? Do you have them? Okay. Here we go. No wonder you were silent. I thought they were right there. There they are. See, Ben is the greatest screen guy we've ever had in our church, all right? Here we go. Commandment number one, ready? You shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number two. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything. Commandment number three, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Well, as we cast our eyes back over at Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, one of the things that I want you to see, first of all, in our first essential lesson, and it's a life-impacting lesson, is the lesson that we learn from this is that, number one, it has to do with the seriousness of, of our words, the seriousness of our words. I want you to recognize that what God is talking about here isn't what we're imagining. He's not talking about what we're thinking. He's not talking about what we're building. He's talking about what comes across our lips. He's talking about the oral sound that comes out of our mouth when we say his name. He's talking about how we use his name out loud orally. One of the things that that triggers in my mind is the incredible context of all of scripture, how words matter to God. Now, in this case, he's talking about, he doesn't forbid the use of his name. Notice that. In a minute, we're going to talk about how that became common to just not even say his name. It's so sacred. It is so holy that we'll just not say it. And when, when the Israelites of old were reading their Bibles, reading the, the prophets and the Pentateuch, and they came to this name of God, They would just skip it and they would just be silent and skip it in the sentence. That's not what God's saying here. God's saying here that when you do use his name, you use it properly and that you have to use it correctly. It helps us to understand when he says in the ESV, it uses what the King James translated, the idea, do not use my name in vain. The NIV uses the the, the concept of do not misuse the name of the Lord our God. The idea of vain, of of vain use of the the name of the Lord is, is using it perhaps in an insincere manner. It's improper. It's insincere. Vain, by definition, has the idea of having no real value. It's empty. It's hollow. It's worthless. And so what he's saying is that when you use my holy name... The holy God, the sovereign God of the universe, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the I am, the all-encompassing God, the only true God says, when you use my name, it must not be used hollowly, um, it must not be hollow, it must not be insincere, it must not be with disrespect in any way. You had better be careful what comes across your lips. Not using his name in vain. I want to remind us, though, as we launch our time here together in point number one, with the seriousness of words, that the Bible talks a lot about our words. And I thought it would be good for us to remind ourselves that when we look at this and we're thinking about oral 
sound out loud words that God's talking about when we use his name, that we need to remember that this is a reminder that God really cares about what we say and what his people say and what they talk about. Let me remind you of a couple verses. You don't have to turn there, but you can uh, just think with me. In Matthew chapter 12, for example, in verse 34 uh, through verse 36. Actually, let's turn there. Let's turn to Matthew 12. I want you to see this. It only takes a minute. You can find Matthew in your Bibles quickly. Matthew chapter 12. This is powerful. These are the words of Jesus. And I want you to see, even in the New Testament, it is strongly emphasized to be careful, little tongue, what you say. God cares about how his people talk. This is a most convicting passage where Jesus is confronting the Pharisees. And they were known for their manipulation of language, their duplicitous terms, saying one thing, meaning another thing, redefining words. I'm glad that kind of thing never happens anymore. Matthew chapter 12, verse 33. Notice what he says. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, he's talking to the Pharisees specifically, sinners in general. How can you speak good when you are evil? Look at this. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you on the day of judgment. Look at this. This is powerful. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. And you say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What is that all about? Listen, it has to do with the word picture that he started the passage with, that you can tell a tree by its fruit. The concept is relatively simple. If it's evil on the inside, then where does the evil end up? Evil on the outside. I found this out in a hurry when I was about seven years old, out playing all-day army on a Saturday with Rudy Baldraz, Eddie Hazier, Ernie Garza, Richie Hazier. We had a great day, and I learned lots of new words that day from those guys and my next-door neighbors. And I came home and ran into the kitchen, and my sister told me to do something, and I used some of those new words on her. And the house caved in. (laughs) You don't talk like that. Where did you learn that? Where did that come from? And you know better than I know, because of the world in which you live, you know that there is a distinct and even perverse way that pagans talk. You know that when there's no light, when there's no fruit of righteousness, when there's no salvation, that it can show on the lips. God is saying, when you are righteous... And when there's goodness on the inside, that it will show on the outside. And in fact, on the very day of judgment, God says, I could line you up and I, will reveal, I can review your words and I can tell you whether you're one of mine or whether you're not by the very things that you've said and recorded of said all your life, in speech all your life. That's a powerful reality. So what's he talking about? We have to just muster up a good so that we have good on the inside? You can't do it. It always drives us to Christ, doesn't it? It always drives us to the righteousness of Christ. Because sooner or later, I'm going to hit my finger with a hammer. Sooner or later, somebody's going to take a cheap shot upside my head playing basketball. And what's going to come out of me is of no good thing. And so what do I have? I don't have the ability to muster good from inside so that I can produce good fruit. I have only the ability to go to the cross, to go to Christ, where he gives me his righteousness and the goodness of Christ becomes mine so that, 2 Corinthians 5.17, I am now a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. Everything is becoming new in the process of my sanctification and growing in Christ's likeness. And you can tell by my words. Because there's been a change in my heart and Christ now indwells me and I am now the temple of the Holy Spirit. I now have goodness on the inside. I now am a child of God, born brand new in the new birth. And by his regeneration and then his ongoing sanctification, everything becomes new, even the way I talk. Is that true of you? I can remember so often when I was a boy hearing my dad talk about how mean and cussing and angry he was as a country boy up in northern Wisconsin. And he had seven brothers and he had five sisters and they were poor. And he said, I fought all the way to school. I got in trouble while I was at school and I fought all the way home. And then one day when he was 16 years old, a traveling evangelist made his way through the farm country of 
of the Wausau, Wisconsin outskirts, shared the gospel. Eugene Marceau became a born-again young man. And he said everybody knew it. He said everybody on the way to school, everybody at school, and everybody on the way home from school knew it, and all the animals in the barn knew it. (laughs) Why? What happened? What changed? He changed on the inside, and it began to show on the outside. God says, my people don't talk like everybody else. My people have a different vocabulary. Has your vocabulary been sanctified? The only way it's going to be sanctified is if you're in Christ. And that the righteousness of Christ is yours because we have no good in of ourselves. Have you been to the cross? Have you been made new? Are you a new creation in Christ? If not, today's the day of salvation. Today's the day to put your faith and trust in Christ alone. So he'll do for you what you cannot do for yourself. He'll make you clean of all your sin and your filth that you know exists. And it even comes out on your mouth and your tongue. The Bible has much more to say about our words. Think about this. You don't have to turn there. Let me just say a couple things. How about Ephesians chapter 5? Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 4. Listen to this. Paul instructed the Ephesian believers, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk. No filthiness or foolish talk. No crude joking. Look what he says. Which are out of place. They're out of place. For who? For God's people. For his church. For the body of Christ who represents him. There's to be no filthy talk, no crude joking, no crass language. He says, but rather thanksgiving. That's Ephesians 5, 4. I think the Bible's pretty easy to understand right there. How about you? Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. Look what he says. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whatever you do in what? In word, be able to do it in a way that brings glory to Christ. God cares about our language. God cares about our speech. I think that's lesson number one when you read the Ten Commandments. And God has given us this short list of instruction. And it is emphatic. And he's not kidding. And he's not goofing around. And the third one is, you better be careful what comes across your lips when you talk about me. James chapter 3 is a huge chapter filled. It's a great study. Some of you with younger kids, use James chapter 3 this week. Open the Bible at the dinner table and go through James chapter 3 and and look at all the illustrations about the tongue. It'll say there, do you know that fresh water and salt water can't come out of the same fountain? It's the same illustration as a tree can't bear two kinds of fruit or good fruit and bad fruit. He says the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. He says no one can control their own tongue. No man yet has ever been able to control his tongue. So what's that all about? It's a reminder again of the enabling power of the indwelling Christ to give me what I need to control my tongue that I cannot do in and of my own strength. Ephesians 5.12, back to Ephesians 5. He says, listen to this. He says, for it is even shameful. It is shameful even to speak, ESV says, of the things that are ungodly, that the ungodly do in secret. Do you get that? NIV puts it something like this. For it is shameful even to mention the things that the disobedient do in secret. God doesn't want us even talking about. He doesn't want coming across our lips talking about, in an inappropriate way, the things that sinners do. But what do we do? We sit down, hit the clicker, and watch for entertainment what the disobedient do in secret. Do we live in a world that is vulgar with speech? I mean, it is unbelievable. In public, walking through Walmart, television programming, movies, the language is out of control. Not so with God's people. He calls us to control what comes out of our mouth. Lesson number one, the seriousness of our words. Well, let's go back to Exodus chapter 20 and let's get at the heart of the commandment. Because the heart of the commandment is a a true reminder, number two, about the holiness of our God. It's about the holiness of our God. I want you to look down at the page and look at verse 7 where he says, You shall not take the name of the... Now look what it says... The Lord, your God, in vain. We've already talked about vain, this empty use, hollowed out meaninglessness, using it in a way that is without true meaning, an inappropriate way. But I want you to look at the word Lord right there. 
Do you notice something that it's all capital letters? L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Now let me remind you something that many of you know already, but it's kind of interesting and it casts a light on this. Do you know that, do you know that God, when his name is used in, Bible, in the Bible, God has many different names. You cannot, if, you could, if you could capture God in one name, what would it be? It would be, I am. I still struggle and meditate. What does that mean? Remember at the, at the burning bush when Moses said, who should I tell them sent me? When he had this encounter with God out in the desert and God just said, tell him I am sent you. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, because whatever God is, he is. I am. He's all powerful. Yeah, I am. He's all knowing. I am all knowing. I am. I am. He's the I am. You can keep meditating and that's good lawnmower time to figure out what does God mean by his name? I am. But in the Bible, it's used different names, and it's actually a very interesting study. All the different names of God. Of God. Um, I, let me remind you of one that gets used the most. It was when Abraham was up on Mount Moriah, and he was getting ready to offer Isaac, his son, as a living sacrifice before God. He had the knife up, and remember, God stopped him. He shows him the ram tangled in the brush by his horns. And Abraham called God that day, what? Jehovah Jireh. My God who provides. So one of the names of God is Jehovah Jireh, the providing God. You see, I like the name for God that's Elroy. My middle name is Elroy. When I was a youth pastor, all the young people used to, to mock me and call me, Hey, Elroy, what's going on? It's not spelled, my name is spelled E-L-R-O-Y, but in the Bible there's a name for God. Um, when Hagar was weeping in the wilderness and she thought she was lost and Abraham had sent her away and cast her out of his house with her young son Isaac and she thought she was going to die. God told her, I am El Roy. E-L-R-O-I. I am the God who sees. I know exactly where you are right now. I know exactly what you need. I am the God who sees. So you see how it sheds light on understanding who God is. It's a great way to study your Bible. When we look at our Bible and, and we and have in print capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, do you know that for that is the name of God, Jehovah or Yahweh? And do you know where Yahweh comes from? It's Jehovah is his name. It is considered by uh, ancient Israelites, is considered by many to be the most holy and sacred name of God. It, it means that he is the holy God. Let me, let me see if anybody knows this word. Do you know what a tetragrammaton is? A tetragrammaton? Here's how it works. In Israel of old, they were so concerned about this commandment and using the Lord's name and the capital L-O-R-D of Yahweh or Jehovah that they left letters, they left the vowel sounds out of it. So in English, they would have written it down as, um, they would have written it down as J-H-W-H. In the Hebrew alphabet, they would have written it down Y-H-W-H. And they left the vowel sounds out because it was too sacred to say and too sacred to write. So if they were reading, they wouldn't say it out loud. Do you know that even the scribes, the, those who did the manuscript work, so you have the Pentateuch, you have the works of Moses, or you have the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Do you know they didn't have printing presses, right? You know that. They didn't have printing presses. They didn't have copy machines. And so they had a special select group of holy men. They were scribes. They were, they were a certain level of priests that were ordained to do the copy work. And listen, so what they did was so that they could reproduce copies of the Word of God is they would sit at these desks in a room all day and they, they actually had to wear a certain clothing. They had to eat a certain kind of food. They couldn't be unclean according to ceremonial law of the Levitical law. And they had to write and it was very careful. And then they had these quality control guys that came along. And for example, if you were writing, recopying the book of Exodus for, for somebody to have... They would, they had these guys that would come along and they knew they had these formulas for say page 78 of the scroll and they knew that if they counted, if they counted over seven words and then counted down 17 lines and then went to the left four, four letters that it would be the letter O. And so when they did that and they went down and if it didn't turn out to be the letter O, they had to get rid of it. They couldn't use it because somewhere they, they left out a word or they left out a letter. 
So it was imperfect. That's how they handled the scripture at large. But whenever they came to where they had to write down the word capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh, which they wouldn't even say out loud, only the high priest would say it one time a year at the great day of a feast of atonement, that the scribe at his desk, when he gets to this word, think about how this would bog down your work. They get to this point, they get up from their desk, put down their pen, go take a special kind of bath, put on a brand clean outfit of clothes, come back, pick up a pen that had never been used to write another word, and then they would write the word Yahweh. Now I'm thinking, I'm dealing with people who are thinking about God's name at a whole new level compared to me. And we can say, you know, we can say, those guys were ridiculous. God didn't even say not to say it out loud, and they wouldn't even say it out loud. They wouldn't say it out loud because they were so afraid that if they did say it, they would say it inappropriately. And did you see the warning? God said, I will not hold him guiltless. I'm telling you, God's not goofing around here. And I think the pendulum has swung completely the other way. You know, they went to one extreme, totally careful how they handled the name of God. We go at another extreme, and we use it all the time. Thoughtlessly, carelessly, hollow and empty and inappropriately. We think nothing of it. By the way, just for your interest in probably in the preface of your Bible. Have you ever read the preface of your Bible? How many of you have ever read the preface of your Bible? Yeah, yeah, good, good Bible students. Just read the preface of your Bible. It's kind of interesting. It tells you about the translation and some notes and things that are important. And, and it might tell you in there that when you see the names of God translated a certain way, that it's a certain name of God. I've already explained capital L-O-R-D is Yahweh. All right? But, and if you see the, the name for God, and this is used over 2,000 times in our Bible. In fact, it's used later in verse 7, capital G, little o, little d. It's used in the book of Genesis over and over and over, capital G. In the beginning, God, capital G, little o, little d. It's the word Elohim. Elohim, you know that name? You've heard that, right? Is Elohim. You know what it, it has to do, and these names are difficult to define in simple words. They're, they take many words to describe what the name means. But in short, you can understand Elohim, Elohim to mean the strong and faithful God. The strong one. The powerful God. When you look in your Bible and you see capital L, little o, little r, little d. Capital L, little o, little r, little d. It's the word Adonai. Adonai that has been translated, capital L, little o, little r, little d. And it means the sovereign one or the sovereign ruler. So you can see there's nuance there. That's just a little extra information for you today to ponder when you mow your lawn this week. So we look at the third commandment and what do we see? We have to be hit between the eyes with the reality of the seriousness of our words. Secondly, he says, you be careful how you use my name, Yahweh. And he used capital L-O-R-D. And so that's partly why the Israelites of old, and even to this day, the Orthodox Jew will, will use that word, Yahweh, is the name that is more sacred than other names. What is God doing here? What's he talking about? He's certainly concerned about his holiness. He is a pure and holy and righteous almighty God. He doesn't want his name dragged through the mud. All right? I happen to have a phone call just yesterday with a very good friend of mine, Tim Challey. A great friendship. He's a leader in his church in Eureka, Illinois. He is an executive with Caterpillar Corporation. He was on his, in the car on his way to the Blackhawks game, Jimmy, last night in St. Louis. And he um, uh, was going to meet his son-in-law there. And so we had a good talk. He had time to talk and we were catching up. And he reminded me of something. He works for the Caterpillar Corporation for 38 years. You know Caterpillar, right? They make bulldozers and backhoes and skid loaders, earth-moving machines. Caterpillar. He told me yesterday, he said, yeah, we had a, we, uh, earnings were down for Caterpillar in the first quarter. We only profited a billion dollars. Profits. It was a great company. He reminded me of something in our converse, course of our conversation. It came out. He said, Van, we have a 36-page code of conduct that Caterpillar requires us to read and to sign after we take a test and we have to pass the test so that we know what's in the code of conduct or we can't keep working for Caterpillar. 
What's that all about? I'll tell you what it's all about. It's about a name and a reputation. You got Caterpillar on your shirt and you got Caterpillar on the side of your company car and you got Caterpillar on your hat and you go pull up into some bar or some place that is off limits according to company code and policy. What happens to you? You're out the door, buddy. Why? Because you're not going to take our Caterpillar name and you're not going to put it in that context because we want nothing to do with that. Can I ask you a question? If a dirt-moving company cares about their name, don't you think a holy God has a right to care about the reputation of his name? They want to be dragged through the mud. (laughs) God says, you better be careful how you use my name. I'm a holy God. Take care. Let's quickly look at two others. Very important lessons. Not only... Do we learn about the seriousness of our words, the holiness of our God? But you need to understand that in the context of this teaching and in the historical context of the Israelites, that God is also addressing the truthfulness of our oaths. The truthfulness of our oaths. Maybe the best way for us to quickly get a handle on this is just to turn the page to Exodus chapter 22 and look at verses 10 and 11. Exodus chapter 22, verses 10 and 11. This is kind of interesting. You need to know that, that when God gave the Ten Commandments, of course, it was in brief, Decalogue, ten words, just given point blank. Much of the rest of the Pentateuch, much of Exodus, Leviticus and even Deuteronomy, is given to the expansion and illustrating of how the law looks in everyday life when you live it out. And so here's what he says. He's giving an example of how you are to be truthful When you use the Lord's name in the form of an oath. Exodus chapter 22 verse 25. If you lend money to any of my people. Excuse me. Exodus chapter 22 verses 10 and 11. Verses 10 and 11. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe. And it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it. An oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put down his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath and he shall not make restitution. This is interesting. One time I was having supper with a guy in another church. We were having supper. He said, man, I got a problem. He said, my neighbor left town and I'm supposed to watch his horse and his horse died. They're on vacation on a cruise or something. He said, I had to take my backhoe over there yesterday and bury their horse. He said, I'm responsible. I was watching his horse. I went out there and things lay in there dead. That's what he's talking about right here. He said, you got a neighbor and he's got big animals and a horse or an animal or something. And you, he, you put your neighbor in charge of it. Say, hey, Jenk, I'm leaving. Would you feed my animals and watch over them? And they're all gone when you get back. And the neighbor comes up to him and he says, I'm really sorry, man, but all your animals are, your animals gone. I don't know what happened to it. And he's supposed to be able to be allowed to make an oath using the Lord's name. And you're to look at him and say, as long as he made his oath in the Lord's name, Okay, it's done. No restitution needs to be made. Everything's good. You are at, what he's making an oath is, I did, I did my best. I kept the gate locked. I fed them. And they're gone. I have no idea. What, and I swear by Yahweh that it's true. And as long as he would swear using the name of the Lord is God's name, then you were to accept it and take it. There's another illustration that's interesting uh, along a similar line. Look at Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12. Leviticus 19, 12. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus 19, 12. And I think you can understand very quickly, um, it's very obvious what's happening here. In this context, there was not paper and pens so much. They were an oral culture. And when you made an oath, you had to mean it. God wants his people to be truthful. In the Canaanite society, among the pagans... You were esteemed if you were a liar, if you could, could fraud your neighbor and schnooker him out of stuff by lying to him. You were esteemed if you were a slick liar. Not God's people. God's people were to tell the truth. And one of the ways that they knew they were telling the truth was then to bring an oath in the name of Yahweh. And if you did that, you're telling the truth. So do not misuse or use my name in vain by using my name to convince your neighbor that you're telling the truth when you're lying to him. My people don't do that. That's what the point is. Look at Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12. You shall not swear by my name falsely 
and so profane the name of your God because I am the, what's the, what's the word? Yahweh, Lord, I am the Lord your God. And I am a holy God, and I am a God of truth, and I am a pure God, and I am a God who has an unstained reputation, and you're my people, and you're my representation. Don't go around giving oaths that are meaningless, that include my name. And you would think that that's pretty easy to keep straight, and we don't have time to explore this, but it's very interesting to go to the Gospel of Matthew, for example, and even Jesus addresses this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37, The Pharisees, for example, became very good at creating all these formulas for oaths that didn't use the name of the Lord, but they sounded convincing, but they would make an oath based upon my papa's beard or the gold in my mother's teeth. I swear to you, it's true, but he's lying. But it wasn't esteemed as a lie because he didn't use the Lord's name. And Jesus said, Jesus, listen, you think the Old Testament was bad? You think the Old Testament was It it was. It's impossible to live out. Only Jesus Christ could come and fulfill the law for us. But in the New Testament, Jesus didn't make it easier to live for God. He raised the bar. And you know what he said? He said, ultimately, in that chapter 5 passage, don't swear by this and swear face in Jerusalem and all these oaths that you've corrupted in the name of the Lord. My people just say, let your yes be yes and your no be no. You just speak the truth all the time. Don't be swearing this and swearing that and trying to manipulate the facts. But certainly do not use my name when you're trying to schnooker your neighbor out of goods and you swear by my name and you use it in such a hollow, empty, worthless, corrupt manner. And so we learn a lesson here about the truthfulness of our oaths or the truthfulness of our speech. Finally, I just want to give a pastoral word to my congregation, to my congregation, number four, about the carelessness of our slang. I think when we read the third commandment, It brings to mind a careless level of speech that is very, very common among most of us. We're good at cutting corners, aren't we? I I have a 15-year-old that can give lessons on cutting corners. I didn't say his name, so I don't have to give him five bucks. But uh, (laughs) if I say... If I say to this 15-year-old particular son that lives in my house... You go upstairs, you go upstairs and make your bed before you leave for school. Of course, he never says, yes, dad, I'll gladly make my bed. He usually says, and then I say, don't breathe like that. Go upstairs and make your bed. (laughs) He comes back down in about 12 seconds and I say, did you make your bed? And he says, yeah, I made my bed. And out the door he goes, off to school, and I go up to brush my teeth to head down to the office and I look in his door And he has redefined what it means to make your bed. He has rearranged what the covers have done. It's not even close to the the standard that's been set in our household by Janny Baby of how to make your bed. It's a high standard, let me assure you. That is simply an illustration of how good we are at cutting corners. And I want to suggest that we often cut corners in our speech too, don't we? We become lazy and careless in our speech. My mom used to teach a Sunday school lesson to us when I was a little boy in our little Bible church. She called them minced oaths. I I don't know exactly. I didn't look up minced, but it's changing. Uh, Minced, you know what it is? It is, it's words like, oh, golly. What is that word? Golly. Is that like a take on the name Dolly? Is that like, um, oh, my Molly? No, it's only one thing, isn't it? It's a spin on God's name. How about the word gosh? Oh my gosh. You know, and I understand how culturally acceptable it is. And it doesn't talk about that word in the Bible. That's why I'm just giving a little pastoral pep talk here. But why wouldn't we raise the standard on our speech? We're the redeemed ones in Christ. And we have this holy God who says, I will never hold one guiltless who misuses my name. And so then I go around and make up these little careless, little cool little phrases that are a twist on the name of God. Gosh darn. What is that? G-O-D-D-A-M-N, right? Because said, Pastor Van, you're so old school. Thank you. (laughs) Pastor Van, that doesn't matter. 
You read Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, and you tell me it doesn't matter to play games with the name of God? We're the redeemed ones, we're the ecclesia, the called out ones, and we don't want our speech to be pure and to be Christ-like and to be distinctly different. We're not of this world. We're not to want to be like the pagans. And one of the ways maybe pagans would notice a difference in us And I've often, when I was a youth pastor, would challenge my young men, who especially were going off to basic training. And I would get them off to the side before they left, and I'd give them a talking to about a couple things that they were going to experience in basic training. And one of the things I would say to them is, let me tell you something. And And I would suggest to him two or three words. And I would say, if you just don't say these words ever the whole time you're in basic training, everybody will know you're church boy. Just don't say these words and everybody, you will stand out like a bright neon light because that's their favorite words in the Marine Corps, the Army, whatever. The way we talk matters. And then we twist and we turn all these words. I was thinking about playing ball with some guys, you know, and you get a dirty shot upside the head or something and you're hurt and you just, and some guy, if I was playing ball and the guys happened over there and the guy says, oh, Janet. Wait a minute. Janet? What's Janet got to do with anything? Janet's my girlfriend. Janet's my wife. What are you guys over there fighting saying, Janet, Janet, Janet? Don't mess with my wife's name or you're going to mess with who? Me. And you don't want to mess with me, right? Say right. I was thinking, does that not put in perspective the holy, sacred name Of the God whom we love, why not let our love for God drive us to purity of speech and the use of his name? We love him and so we care for his name. Not only that, in conclusion, not only do we let our love for God drive us to carefulness in the use of his name. Remember, the commands are summed up as we've been reminding ourselves weekly in Matthew chapter 22 that this all sums up by showing love for our God, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind and our might. So let the love I have for this holy God guard my speech. I love my wife, and so there's certain ways I would never use her name. I love her. I love my God. There are certain ways I will never use his name. But not only that, a second lesson that we get from this message is that I think it's a wake-up call for us to listen to our words. Let our love for God drive us to purity of speech. Let our daily practice be to listen to ourselves. God is. Others are. Are you listening to what you sound like? And when someone near to you who cares about you and loves you reminds you that you're not speaking very appropriately, you had better shut up and listen because they're right. I think that we need to really raise the bar on how we're speaking, especially when it includes the use of the Lord's name. And let's remind ourselves from these passages in Ephesians and Colossians that potty talk has no place in the vocabulary of the believer. Remember Ephesians 5.4 that I said earlier? Let no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place be characteristic of you. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. You don't need the lame crutches of this kind of a vocabulary. Thirdly, and finally, I think it's appropriate with this sermon and this reminder of what comes out of our mouth that it is a testimony of what's in the heart for us to look deep in our hearts today. Remember, a good tree can only bring forth good fruit. A fountain cannot bring forth salt water and fresh water at the same time. When you think about your speech, is your speech characteristic of a man or a woman or a boy or girl of God? And if not, why not? And maybe this morning it's actually a good test for you to think about your vocabulary and your words as an examining point for your heart. And maybe Christ is not in you. And that's why it's so easy for these words to come out. That's why it's so easy for us to entertain ourselves with vulgarities and, and swearings and cursings and inappropriate use of the Lord's name and not be offended. Because there's no newness of life in us. 
Do you know Christ today? Would we know it by your language? Is there newness of life? Are you a new creation in Christ? Have you come to the cross and laid down all the filth and laid down all the sin? Because God loves you so much that he gave Jesus Christ, the perfect, righteous son of God, to go to the cross in your place so that you could go to the cross, bow your head over 2,000 years later, admit your sinfulness, and by faith receive the complete righteous package of Christ and deal over to him your filthy, sinful package. He exchanges places with you so that you can stand before a holy God robed in the righteousness of Christ so that when God looks at you, he no longer sees your sinfulness. He sees only the righteous purity and perfect words of our Lord Jesus that are given to you by grace through faith in that mysterious, marvelous transaction called salvation where you become a child of God. That's something only you can do. Only you can look to a holy God and in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, who died in your place, ask him to forgive you and tell him that you believe that Jesus is the Christ and that he died on the cross for you. He was buried and rose again according to the scripture and that you want to come to him with all of your sinfulness and exchange it for his righteousness. Let's bow our heads, please. If you know that you're born again today, would you examine yourself and your heart in the inner recesses Have you let the bar down on your speech? Have you been careless about how you use the Lord's name? Are we thoughtless about Yahweh? Listen, what comes across our lips really, really matters. Say Shibboleth. I'm telling you, God hears every word. What's on the inside comes out. And God's people should not be characterized by filthiness or inappropriate use of his name. And then if you don't know Christ today and you know it, why don't you just in the, in the secret, quiet place of the, the command center of your inner consciousness, your mind, where you make your core decisions, you admit to God right now that you're a sinner and that you know that Jesus Christ died in your place and that you, you don't want to pay the penalty for your own sin that you accept the fact that God loves you and gave you a way out through salvation in Christ. Admit your sinfulness. Believe that he is the Christ. And confess him to be your Savior. You can do that right now in your own heart and mind. Make things right with God and become a new creation in Christ. And so, Father, we need your strength. We are a helpless and poor and needy people and the world presses in around us and we we end up looking and sounding and acting just like them and we want to be distinctly yours. And so start on the inside and make us clean and pure and new. Father, if there's someone here that is recognizing their need for Christ, would you draw them unto yourself and save their soul today? Bring clarity to their mind and peace in their heart as they confess their sinfulness and accept Christ. And Father, for for we as the church at large, would you just help us clean up our vocabulary and help us to care about how we sound and how we speak. We ask these things in Jesus' name, Lord, asking you to just have your way with us. Amen.